Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's pull list for new Marvel comics on sale July 7th, 2021. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, how are you? Oh, I'm doing just fine. I'm running on like two hours of sleep. That's a post-mom visit hangover. Dear old mom came out and hung out for a few days. Did she approve of your living conditions? <laughs> you know, she did. Maybe not the way I live, but like where I live, most certainly. That's great. I'm glad she got to come out and you guys had fun and yeah. went to Disneyland and all that stuff. That's that's pretty wonderful. Over here, for anybody who missed it, over on my social pages, and we put up an article on Marvel.com, I was able to reveal something really cool for Marvel Legends, and it has to do with one of my favorite comics of all time, Next Wave, and it has to do with my favorite character of all time, MODOK. And so if you missed it, go to my social pages at Agent M or go to Marvel.com and you can see all the pictures and the details, get the full scoop on it. That was a lot of fun to do. Big thanks to our pals at Hasbro for that. Uh, We're going to be talking more Hasbro stuff real soon as more stuff is percolating on that front. But we have a great show for everybody today. We've got our picks of the week, three comics that we want everybody to check out that we're hyped about. We're going to give out some awards. Tucker, you are great at picking award names. So think on that. We'll give out awards for all the new comics out this week. We'll tell you what's hitting Collected Editions and Marvel Unlimited. And then, of course, the best part of the show for us is our guest this week is Kelly Thompson. What are we talking about with Kelly? We are sitting down with Kelly Thompson to talk about her incredible run on Black Widow. That's Black Widow, The Ties That Bind, which is brought to you by Kelly Thompson, Elena Casagrande, so many great creators and It's just one of the best books out there. And I know both of us were super pumped to talk about it in any form with any person, let alone one of the best there is, Kelly Thompson. Yeah. Also, Eisner nominated. Yeah. All right. Let's get into things. We have three favorites this week, three picks. The first one of which is Thor and Loki double trouble number four. And I really believe this book you can give to anyone and they will enjoy it. And it's telling a great story with two brothers who then meet up with two female versions of themselves. So this issue opens up with the Thor and Loki that we kind of know in this version. They meet up with a female Thor, and then it's just antics and hijinks. It is brought to us by Mariko Tamaki as the writer, art by Gudahiru, letters by VCs Ariana Mar. Look, Gudahiru can do so many wonderful things with this like cartoony manga-esque style that like bounces from panel to panel. It's so fun. It takes that ease of reading and amps it up with just hilarious moments. You've got two Lokis fighting and they're like transforming and turning into different animals and like bickering and fighting at each other while the two Thors are sitting back and betting on it and like joking about it. There's a giant Midgard serpent. There's space travel and time travel and, and little jibs and jabs and barbs and all this kind of stuff. It's funny. It's sweet. It's a little sad. It's wonderfully done. It's up there for me as one of my favorite books that I know I will give to Catherine when she is a little bit older. And then, you know, like we'll read it together and I'll always have it on my shelf. It's one of those books I know I will keep on my shelf because it's just so perfect. And at the end of the issue, they have some letters that they've gotten in from like families who are reading it together. Do yourself a favor. If you have someone younger in your life you want to read comics with, this is perfect. Or if you just want to remember what it was like to be young and enjoy comics, this is perfect. 100% agreed. Now we're jumping over to my pick this week, which is Captain America number 30, the finale of Ta-Nehisi Coates' run with Captain America. You know, it's it's so interesting and it's been something that you can only really digest the mission statement, the thesis, the themes, what a creator is looking to explore with a specific character when you have – all the issues in your hands. And it's something here that you can digest all 30 of these issues and really analyze the inner workings of, as people in America, one of our best writers, what their mind is thinking, what the inner workings of this brain is as it relates to Captain America, as it relates to the identity of Captain America, the shield, the mantle, and then what it is to be an American in general. This issue it really does feel like 
one whole piece, this look at Captain America and this crucially look at Captain America's supporting characters. In here, there's an excellent scene with Red Skull. Big spoilers abound there, but it's one of those scenes that's down to conversation. And you think one of the the things that uh, Mr. Coates is best at is those moments where Cap can go to war with someone, not with his fists, not with the shield, but with his words and with his ideology. So with that in mind, with what we've said 30 times now about how great the supporting cast has grown into being, it's a great celebration, a great closing of Captain America. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things that um, you know I think we'll look back on and cherish, knowing that we had this time with this writer, with these artists that have been on this book, which is some incredible names, and really, really look at it as this beautiful little, not just time capsule, but... Uh, meditation on all of these themes and subjects. It's really cool. All right. Our third pick for this week is X-Men number one. This is a big one, 40 plus pages of new X-Men goodness brought to us by Jerry Duggan on the writing side with art by Pepe Larraz, colors by Marte Gracia, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller. These are like some of our favorite creators right here. Jerry here getting to take a big superhero swing with the X-Men, the X-Men of Krakoa, you know, as we've been doing this for about two years, have not had a like straight up superhero presence. The X-Men book has been little bits and pieces of superhero stories, but really this is them planning their flight and saying, we're here, we're representing Krakoa, we are superheroes to help people alongside Pepe Larraz and Marta Gracia. Like such a perfect working relationship. You can see what Pepe brings. You see what Marte brings. The colors are so beautiful. The the shades, the the emotion that every part of it from whether it's Marte or Pepe, when they come together, I'm looking at a panel of Ben Yurick in particular. Ben Yurick shows up in this issue, famous reporter of the Daily Bugle. He shows up to have a conversation with Cyclops. And there's a one panel of him up close and just the lines on his face, the lighting, the way his glasses are reflecting. It's just, it's so simple, but so damn good. The idea here, like I said, is the X-Men, this team, this book is about the superhero part of Krakoa. And so where do most superheroes hang out? New York City. Krakoans have now purchased a piece of land in New York City, and they have put stakes down on the ground for not an embassy, but a headquarters. It is a monument. It is a celebration. It's got memorials. It's it, There's so much to it. It is a very thoughtful piece of real estate in New York City, and it houses a team of X-Men. It's a great team. We know that Polaris was the character that was voted into the team by fans. But on top of that, you have Wolverine, uh, Laura, Rogue, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Sink, and Sunfire. And it's a lot of fun. We get introduced to new villains, a new Earthbound villain, and a new sort of galactic threat, I will say. I don't understand how Pepe designs so much every time he comes to bat. There's so many new designs in here, whether it's costumes or creatures, mechs, aliens, tons of aliens, a new big new villain. Dude is something special. This is a, a book to behold. This is a new era for X-Men. There's a lot of good stuff for the X-Men here. There's a lot of dangerous stuff. There's a lot of mysteries. It's kind of what you want out of an X-Men superhero title. Absolutely. Uh, congrats to everybody on kicking off that run. Now we are going from our picks of the week into all the new comics headed your way on, get this, 7-7-2021. Seven, seven, so where, where are we? we're in heaven this week. So our inaugural Heaven Award this week for me is being doled out and given to someone who is working on Amazing Spider-Man number 70, which is our first book that we're covering. And that person is Federico Vicentini, who is the artist on this book. Federico just crushes it. Federico is like this weird sort of balance between a Ryan Otley and then like little flashes of, I don't know, like just slightly more abstract, slightly more chaotic, 
little messy. It's it's really, really cool, his work in here. I think over these 70 issues, we've seen a bunch of Federico, and I think every single one has sort of grown in stature. This is not just an issue in and of itself, issue number 70, as we head towards 74, which will be the final issue of this run of Amazing Spider-Man, but it's also a prelude to Sinister War. Sinister War number one is coming up real quick. You feel that momentum. You feel the climax coming, and uh, it's all in the way in Amazing Spider-Man. We have got Amazing Spider-Man Annual number two and the, what was it? The inaugural award in heaven? Yeah, sure. Yeah. The inaugural (laughs) award in heaven goes to Carla Pacheco, writer supreme who writes this issue. She made a personal request. And I know this because I asked her specifically. (laughs) It was that her personal request to have Ripley Ryan, aka Star, show up in this issue wearing the bad... Real bad t-shirt, the one that was worn by Johnny Storm in the pages of Daredevil from the Anacenti John Romita Jr. run. We talked about this t-shirt at length in a previous episode with Chip Zdarsky. We, all of us, like, why don't we own this t-shirt? Yeah. And again, I say, why don't I own this t-shirt? <laughs> Carla said that she didn't think they would let her get away with it, but they did. They being Marvel, I guess. So kudos to Marvel for like having fun, but also she wanted to do it mostly to piss off Chip. And uh, hopefully Chip, Chip is pissed. I want to see him (laughs) put this in his newsletter because it's so good. This is a lot of fun. It's Star just messing with reality and messing with Spider-Man and the two of them, you know, doing their whole thing. There's also the, the great backup story that follows along with Nick Fury and it gets real weird and really gorgeous, wonderful stuff all around. Oh, yeah. Uh, Next up, we have America Chavez, Made in the USA, number four. This issue, I feel like we're really starting to dig into it. And by that, I don't just mean the narrative, the plotty stuff, certainly a bunch of that. But in terms of the emotional struggles of the character, in terms of what is at risk for America in this series, in terms of her family story, in terms of the personal side of things, I feel like family and friends and emotion love is such a big part of america chavez's story and that's something i really 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 enjoy about this character so we're really starting to dig into that and we end up in a place that i did not expect really really looking forward to seeing where we're going next so my first inaugural heaven award goes out to Kalinda vasquez because I think not just this story, not just the emotional story that's being told, but the pace of this emotional story that's being told, the way it's being unfurled in front of us is really, really well done. And I'm really liking this book. Hell yeah. Uh, A book I'm super loving. Another one of my potential choices this week was Avengers number 46. This is the first part of World War She-Hulk. Jason Aaron, Javier Garon, worthy of the title World War She-Hulk. It's big, it's challenging for our heroes. There's betrayals, there's twists and there's turns, there's nasty stuff. Javier feels like he just keeps leveling up. The way he draws the child who has the star brand, man, fierce. The way Jason writes that character is hilarious. But the I think the biggest thing in here for me, the first inaugural Heaven Award is the final two-page spread. It's just nasty and scary. It's like the drums beating for World War She-Hulk really starting. Yeah, totally. Next up, we have Children of the Atom number five. This is such a fun book. And it feels just like the perfect book for Vita to write because it's like a a meta-analysis of the X-Men, of the place the X-Men hold in the world. At the same time as like in the 616 and in the universe, as it is in our universe, because these characters, because the children of the Atom aren't mutants, maybe, but they look to the X-Men. They look to Krakoa. They're inspired by Krakoa and the X-Men. So seeing that idolization find friction in certain ways and have breakthrough moments in other ways is really, really fun. And ultimately, it's such a rewarding experience. That's what I give my Heaven Award to for this one. It's just a really rewarding read because I think this one out of all the five issues so far feels like a landmark moment. This feels like there's a big thing, not just for us for readers, but for the characters themselves in terms of their journey, in terms of calling themselves the children of the atom and what that means. Uh, it feels like a threshold moment for them, which is really, really cool to see. Yeah. 
All right, up next, we have Extreme Carnage Alpha number one. This is interesting because it sort of jumps off of the, there was a Carnage story, I believe it was by Donnie Cates and Kyle Hotz, if I remember correctly, in Carnage, Black, White, and Blood recently with Carnage sort of getting into some sea creatures. And that is where we start this story and how Carnage is sort of getting itself back in motion and getting involved in things. So there's really cool stuff there. But I think I'm going to give my inaugural Heaven Award for this issue to the fact that they brought back an old anti-mutant group called the Friends of Humanity and repurposed it for like a new age and a new time. And I think it's really well done. And I'm like, I hate the Friends of Humanity, friggin' racist, great villains, way to use them. And the way it's like positioned and and the the sort of political climate of it all. Good job, y'all. Nice. Next up, we have Hellions number 13, which I have a ton to say about. I really, really love it. We're clearly obviously on the back of the Hellfire Gala. And now just like we did with, Ten of Swords, we're headed back into our own corners of Krakoa here, exploring the storylines alongside these teams. This one is so fun. One, I think Rohe Antonio artist on here crushes some of these characters' designs. I think there's like there's like five or six different new character designs in here that I just really, really love. So uh, Heaven Award to Rohe, but also inaugural Heaven Award to Nanny. Come on. Mm-hmm. One of the best out there. And Knowing that Nanny is just sort of just hanging out, maybe out on a precipice. I don't know anything. I'm just speculating. I have no idea. It's just a fear of mine that something will happen to Nanny because I love Nanny so much. But uh, it's a credit to the entire team. And, you know, we'll see. But Zeb, please keep Nanny safe, please. Good God. (laughs) I don't know. The last couple pages of that one, I'm not sure what's going (laughs) to happen. Yeah. Uh, All right. We're moving on to Immortal Hulk number 48. I think this is the anti-penultimate issue of hell yeah i think we're getting there yeah yeah Uh, we're getting close and it's a a sort of a different issue than normal there's a lot more sort of like talking and and sort of building of different things i'm going to give my inaugural heaven award to joe fix it and betty for knocking boots and really knocking around some stuff in this issue um (laughs) we don't see that Clearly, it's an all-ish ages book, but they really get into it in this issue. There's some wonderful moments and sort of like laying groundwork for what the last two issues are going to be in here. You get some interesting emotional stakes at the core of this one. Absolutely. Next up, we have Runaways, number 37. I think there are maybe, I tried to count, there are like maybe 10 word balloons in this entire issue and they all come in like one specific part and that's it the rest is just all played quietly and beautifully and yet and yet and yet you feel the emotion as perfectly as you would if this was you know filled with words it feels like sort of that moment at the end of a movie where you cut to a montage you've been on a journey with a bunch of these different characters and you you're just cutting through a montage of seeing these characters going through their daily lives, going back to what they do, and you're just completely right there with them because the story has been so well told. You understand what they're thinking, what they're feeling, even though you don't hear them say a peep. It's just amazing. So Heaven Award, shout out to both Rainbow and Andres. That's Rainbow Rowell and Andres Genole, co-storytellers in here, obviously credited as writer and artist, but the storytelling abilities they both have are unbelievable. You know, this is one of the best books out there. It continues to find new ways to get at you, get at your heart, tell a beautiful story. Congrats to Andres for uh, going on to the big Ms. Marvel new book. He'll yeah. be the artist on that soon, but I will miss him in the pages of Runaways. Agreed. For sure. I'm going to keep going right now because I love Star Wars and because the next book is Star Wars Bounty Hunters number 14. And it is the time of Bounty Hunters right now because they're all trained on Han Solo in War of the Bounty Hunters. This issue in particular, I think, places Valance in a position that I can't quite remember him being in so far, which is really, really cool. Um, That's one of the things that I've loved uh, as Valance has been re-canonized, getting to know this character on the inside, not just in terms of his cool Terminator-esque look, but in terms of what's going on inside that head. So uh, all of that, as well as some of the classic 
crash, bang, punch, throw down, laser spaceship action that you have come to expect from Ward of the Bounty Hunters and from this Bounty Hunter series in general. So Heaven Ward, shout out to Valance, the character who I think is going through a unique time. And then shout out to Paolo Vianelli, who I think brings it home in fine fashion with the art. Hell yeah. All right, we've got Trials of Ultraman number four this week. Shout out to pals of mine over at Shout Factory who are celebrating Ultraman Day on July 10th. If you have access to the channel Tokushoutsu, which I highly suggest you watch it if you like Japanese Spider-Man or anything great and kaiju-ish. They're doing a whole marathon of Ultraman stuff. So if you're curious about Ultraman, you can see some of the shows that have influenced this comic. And this comic, I'm going to give my inaugural Heaven Award to a reference on page one. There's a word balloon in here that said, yeah, okay, the design feels a little derivative, but that thing is huge. And they show an image of the kaiju Jiris, which if you know your Ultraman, like I do, I giggled a lot at this one because the original suit for Jiris in the old Ultraman TV show was basically a, they were reusing an old Godzilla costume and they just put a big like fin neck thing around it and it became Jiris and it's wonderful. It's a really great line, big kaiju fight action in Ultraman as, as we like it. All right, we have one more book and it is X-Force number 21 this week. I want to give a couple of the inaugural Heaven Awards to, you know, Josh Kassara for just drawing some oopy, goopy, manny thingy action throughout this. Oh, just so gross. (laughs) It's so good. Also, an award to our friend Benjamin Percy for giving me more of that Forge goodness that I crave. (laughs) It's a wild issue. It's gross. And it's following up on some really heavy stuff that we saw throughout the Hellfire Gala, and that's been sort of percolating through the pages of X-Force. It's nasty. Also, now every time I look at Beast, I think of just like how big he's getting and like how bloated and nasty. And I love that choice by Ben and and Josh and the team. It's so chef's kiss. So, so, so awesome. So much to love. So much to go and pick up at your LCS this week. And while you're there, why don't you check out a few collections? Uh, Hey, speaking of Man-Thing, we have Man-Thing, Whatever Knows Fear. We also have the King in Black entry for Symbiote Spider-Man. That was obviously a perfect crossover tie-in. There's also King in Black Atlantis Attacks. A bunch, as usual, to love in collections. Over on Marvel Unlimited, there's some more King and Black stuff. There's X-Men number 19, but two big number ones in there. Silk number one, which definitely you should check out. Silk's a great title, but my favorite of the whole lot, Beta Ray Bill number one. If you did not read this book yet, Beta Ray Bill number one is now on Marvel Unlimited. Just this series, one of the finest we've put out this year. Absolutely. One of the best books out there. And speaking of... One of the best books out there, one of the best books going right now is Kelly Thompson's Black Widow. And that's the book that we're going to be chatting about with Kelly herself. This is our talk with Kelly Thompson. Tucker. We have one of our favorite guests talking about one of our favorite books, and it is none other than Kelly Thompson here to talk about some Black Widow. Kelly, welcome back to the show. Hi, guys. I've missed you. Missed you, too. I also hate you and (laughs) uh, am very upset with you and walked upstairs from my office this morning immediately after having read the book with, like, wet eyes and, like, (laughs) croaky throat to my wife being like, you really got to read that Black Widow book <laughs> put down on the table for you. <sighs> Welcome back, Kelly. We love you. We adore you. You're the best in the world. Also, we hate you. Get out of here. Get out of our faces. <laughs> this, this all checks out, by the way. This yeah. makes sense. I don't know about you, Tucker, but for you, Ryan, especially, I mean, you have a young child, so. Yeah. 
It's really something else. Uh, before we go any further, we'll say we are talking about here, dear listeners, Black Widow, The Ties That Bind. This is the first five issues of the current Black Widow series by you, Kelly Thompson, with art by Elena Casagrande, with Rafael De La Torre, doing some work on issue number five, colors by the mighty Jordi Belair. There's some flashback art in here by Carlos Gomez and Federico Blee, letters by VCs Corey Pettit, wonderful edits by Sarah Brunstad. Man, dynamite team, y'all. Really, really incredible. I mean, it also, just to give some context, I mean, we were mostly making this during the pandemic, especially those early like summer months that were just so hard. And, you know, here was Elena just sort of toiling over this incredible stuff under really tough circumstances. You know, she's in Italy, which of course was hit really, really hard. She has a young son. So, you know, you could imagine how complicated that becomes. And so we had a couple really great people sort of rounding out the team to help us out. Rafael De La Torre, who, of course, did issue six, which is incredible. He stepped in for a few pages here and there. And then we had that great flashback sequence, which I think was really wonderful because it's a very contrasting, especially with the blee colors, really has a lot of superhero pop to it, which is sort of a different sensibility than the overall tone of the book. Like I thought it was a really great, I love it when a flashback or an alternate artist can like work in that way. Like we try to be really smart about those things. Yeah. I mean, it's just an incredible team. Elena and Jordy together is pure magic. I feel very lucky. Yeah, those are some names that I feel like we're going to be saying again and again and again and again. Jordy and Elena, we talk about them every single time we end up reading one of these issues, truly some of the best in the business. I just want to hear from your angle, Kelly. How did you and Elena end up on this creative team? What were those early conversations like? And then once the book was cast, what were the early chats between you and Elena like? Well, so Elena was... Like very early on, that was who I wanted when Sarah and I were talking about artists. And I think that her work totally justifies putting her on this book. But I will say, I think, especially in the way she handles those action scenes, but across the board, I think she just totally leveled up for us. I think she's doing really career-defining work. You know, she can switch from those incredible action spreads that are really helping define the book and give us this visual identity. But then she downshifts to this really emotional subtle stuff with Nat and Yelena or Nat and Stevie and stuff like that. So it's incredible. I was pushing for Jordy from day one because I knew we were going to need like a very special palette for this, especially because we were going to set it outside of New York City and we were trying to sort of carve our own path there. I knew that I really trust and believe in Jordy. And very quickly when we put Jordy and Elena together, they just clicked and they were really excited about working together. You know, it's pretty awesome when you get seat when you're CC'd on the emails, which are just like the artists saying how much they love the colors on their work and the colorist saying how much they love coloring the work. Yeah, it's just a love fest. <laughs> It's a damn fantastic book. Now, Kelly, one of the things we like to do, if you're up for it, is to give you 30 seconds. Can you give us sort of a 30-second idea of what this book is? A little timer in three, two, one, go. So this is the perfect jumping on point for any new Black Widow fan or lapsed Black Widow fan, but I hope there's plenty of intrigue and mystery for the hardcore readers. It basically tells a story of Natasha that sort of splits her superhero life away from a sort of life that she maybe didn't consider or maybe never thought she would get. And the choices she has to make in order to protect those people is intense. It's a wild ride. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler free, too. I know. I didn't hit any of the guest stars. Come for the Hawkeye. Stay for the Winter Soldier. Is Yelena Bolivia in this? We don't know. Everyone should buy it. That's what I'm saying. Everyone should buy it. For anyone who hasn't read it yet, put down the podcast for a second. Go read the book. Go to your local comic shop. Buy the collection. Read the issues on Marvel Unlimited. I think most of them are in there because we will get into some spoilers. And it's um it's a really intense story. There's so much to talk about. One of the other pieces of the creative team that we didn't talk about yet is Adam Hughes and those friggin' Adam Hughes covers. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, listen, Adam Hughes is one of the best in the business. I don't think that's hyperbole. Uh, he is an incredible, incredible illustrator. He's a great storyteller too, although we mostly see his work in covers these days. But um, I just think he really was incredibly kind in how much consideration he gave 
the story we were trying to tell. So every cover feels different. They all feel sort of like sides of Natasha to me. Cover five has got to be a standout for me. That one where she's perched on top of the signs looking down. I love that one. But I also really love his cover to six against the wall. It's so simple that against that brick wall. And that's like the debut of the new costume. The cover to three where he worked in I do in a different color into the Black Widow Mm. of the text when she's in the wedding dress. Are you kidding me? It's so (laughs) smart. Incredible. So we've been just totally blessed in this case. I think one of the people behind the scenes that I love shouting out, and this is something that I love to do for all our editors, you were talking about Sarah a little bit earlier, Kelly. Had you worked with her or been in the process of working with Sarah on Captain Marvel by the time the Black Widow conversations started? And following that question, I just want to present an opportunity for us to talk about how great of an editor Sarah Brunstad is. That's somebody who really fights for their books. It's really, really cool. Yeah, she's incredible. Yeah, no, we were well into Captain Marvel. We might have been a whole year in, so we were pretty deep in it already. She came up to me at one of the summits, and I had been trying to get my hands on Black Widow for a little while. And so when she mentioned it to me, I was like, I actually have a pitch ready to go. And I pitched it to her and I was like, and I got to tell you right up front, like it's a real move away from the Red Room stuff. I was like, not that I don't like it. I just think we've covered it for a while, you know, like let's see some other sides of this. And she was like, 100% agree. And I was like, okay, we're going to be fine. And she loved the pitch. And so we started set off. In your story, Natasha is given this perfect life. She has a husband, she has a child. There's a reality to it. Like that's one of the things that I love about this. There's the stakes are high. There's just trauma and so much difficulty, but they're not written out of her story. And those things, I think to some folks, like it's hard to imagine your your favorite superheroes with like, you know, relationships and children and all this stuff. Was there any blowback? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's this really tricky thing. And fortunately I've been doing pretty good stuff for Marvel. So I think they were willing to give me a little rope to sort of like, even if they were skeptical they were like, well, let her try it. You know, we'll see. <laughs> um, very early on, I was like, I want to do something that's going to really change her. That's not just going to be another mini series adventure, but that's something that will stay with her her whole life. But I can't have her raising an infant. So how can I do this? That's going to be responsible to the character, but also get me that emotional depth that I'm really seeking for the character that I feel like sometimes gets missed because she's just such a badass. You know, we sometimes just get that surface. And so the idea was that, you know, well, how would this really play out if this happened to her and she really loved them? She wouldn't try to hold on to them because she'd know that would be the worst thing she could do. And so I just really felt that this was what she would do, that this is an idea that sort of came from Natasha and made it all the more tragic for its reality, right? But I thought that if I could execute it correctly, which I think we did, that Marvel would be okay because it would be a really incredible story and one that really changes her and pushes her in a different direction, which is what we're doing now, but that also doesn't saddle her with something they feel like they have to deal with later. Like those characters are on the shelf and we can take them down if we need to, but we don't have to. I mean, it's such an amazing achievement, literally just starting off at issue number one, you can see how unbelievably light on its feet this storytelling is. It's amazing. And by that, I mean, like if you look at the balloon to panel ratio, It's unbelievable. Like, it's so concise without being laconic, without being deliberately, like, short on its words. It does all the storytelling that you need. Like, if you look at the sort of exploded view of issue number one in Marvel Unlimited, like I am, like, there's really only one page, maybe, that looks like it has a bunch of dialogue in it, and that's the conversation with Cap. The rest is all visual storytelling. It's done with the fewest words possible, but the perfect words at the same time. That's elite-level comic books. Oh, thank you. Oh, of course. I mean, and to bring it back a little bit, you said that you had this pitch in your back pocket. Is that something that you just have? Like, 
Does inspiration just come from wherever it might and you just start to ruminate on these things or are you a little bit more scientific, a little bit put them in the laboratory and, and, and crunch them out? So I, I want to answer that. Can I just say thank you for those really kind words about the storytelling? It was one of the reasons that getting someone like Elena and Jordy was so important because I knew I was going to have to really pull back. Like, I'm not saying Nat isn't funny or sharp or clever. She's all those things, but she's not a sassy Kate Bishop. She's not even a Jessica Jones. Like she's not cracking jokes. She plays her cards close. She chooses her words carefully. I knew I wanted to write her that way. It was really important to me that we write her that way. And that means you need other people doing really heavy lifting on other stuff to make that storytelling work. And I was very nervous about it. In issue one, I was like, oh my God, we have a completely silent page. I was like, Marvel is going to freak out. Like, I don't think they're, <laughs> I don't think they're going to be into this. I was very worried. And then everything sort of calmed down when I saw Elena send in art for issue two, that scene when the reader and Clint first see Stevie. And that in the script had so many more words on the page. And I looked at it and I was like, this expression of Clint, especially, I don't know if you guys remember, there's a page where it's Nat and Stevie in silhouette, like they're sort of heads bumping or something, like if they're touching heads. And then through the background is Clint's expression <laughs> as he's seeing this woman that he has cared about for his whole life, almost bonding with this baby. Tears immediately sprung to my eyes for how powerful it was. And I was like, we don't need any of these stupid words. I was like, get rid of them all. <laughs> I was like, clear them out. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that, that page ended up being much more silent and so much better for it. And I think that that's not always something you can do. It's not always something you should do. But I do think it's true love of making comics that you can look at the page and go, oh, yeah, I loved some of these words I wrote and we don't need them. It's better without them, you know? As to the ideas thing, Yes and no. I have a lot of characters that I really love that I have pocket ideas for. I mean, I'm sure it surprises nobody that I have stuff like that for Elsa Bloodstone, She-Hulk, Dazzler. Like sometimes it comes from working with them on something like A-Force and then you get ideas, but you know you can't do them. So stuff like that. But I wish I had more back pocket ideas for like bigger characters that I know Marvel definitely wants to make a book of. I tend, <laughs> I tend to find the sort of misfits and the not top sellers. And I'm like, oh, I love you. Come on. We need an Elsa together. Bloodstone book. <laughs> we need that after the Jessica stuff. Like that was when so good. When you said Dazzler, my body just went, <laughs> it was like, oh no. A Kelly Thompson Dazzler book is everything I've ever wanted. <laughs> I want to go back a little bit. You were talking about the facial expressions, specifically of Clint in the scene where he first meets the family. I just want to celebrate Elena's work on the acting of it all, the facial expressions. There's really funny moments too. Like she does some great moments with eyes. There's the moment where Natasha goes and she's she's in the building and she's the, in her architect mode and she's meeting with the other builders and she does this crazy move and like one of the guys like looks like he's straight out of a like a cartoon his eyes like pop and it's you are immediately brought into all of that and there's all those types of moments and those like the slumping shoulders like those things it's something that Tucker and I talk about a lot on the show because when you notice it that it's done well it just elevates a great book to an even greater book and it's it really is part of you know one of the reasons why it all works so well here thank you there's this moment when you start working with a new team, you know, where you're like, seems like it could be great, but we don't really know. And then there's that moment where you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, this is magic. Like we got it. We're, we're going to nail it. And so that was very true with this team. It's sort of a, a separate level when, when, when you get to have that and it, it means a lot and it, it's really rewarding. One of the other things I wanted to touch on is just the look of the world in terms of, of character costumes and wardrobe, fashion. Did Elena have like a character studies that she shared with you and the team beforehand? Or is she just come out and be like, this is what Natalie's going to look like. She's like the coolest looking person in the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that 
you know, we knew in choosing her that she really had that sense of style and that she was good at fashion and that she just was going to take to that for the day to day. I mean, she would just do the layouts and you'd be like, oh, these look amazing. And then she'd, she'd send the first page that had Natasha in a, like a regular outfit with the haircut. And you're like, oh my God. And you're like, wow, we, we did choose wisely. Like we, we knew we made the right choice, but like, this is a whole other level, you know? You were talking about how issue two, there was a moment where it it started to really like hit home and, and click with the emotional punch of these things in terms of what you're writing and in terms of how Elena is going to render what you're writing. I'm curious to hear one, a little bit about how you write for Elena specifically, if that is different to the way you write for other uh, artists. And two, like if there's a point where you go, this person's so incredible that like, I either want to like test them even more, give them even bigger, crazier, wilder layouts (laughs) or ideas or things like that, or just unleash them and just say, yeah, these two pages, not fights go, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I think the answer is I do write differently for different people. Although the most consistent thing is I write pretty tight, detailed scripts. If that's our first time working together. Like if I've never worked for you and you've never worked with me, we don't know. I don't know what you like. I don't know what you want. I do try to look at styles and layouts. And like, if I see someone never uses more than five panels, then I'm like, okay, they do not want to draw more than five panels on a page. Let me try to respect that or whatever. So I try to pay attention to that stuff as much as I can. But the bottom line is when we start, I'm going to start sort of tight and then it'll loosen up as we sort of grow together into what I think, you know, everyone's understanding or not, or what's working or not. On issue three, I was still writing those spreads pretty specific. Like I'm like, she jumps off the counter and lands by the tea kettle and hits him with the tea kettle and whatever. But now writing for her, like I keep it much looser. I like to really give Elena as much room as she wants because she's proven that she can not only do it and more, but she doesn't need me to tell her what to do. Like she gets it. That style, specifically the one you're seeing in like uh, in Black Widow 3 is usually called the DeLuca effect, which is like multiple figures moving within a same panel or the same background without panel borders or with limited use of panel borders. So like the one in four where she's in the living room with the pool table, that one's like a less, even though it feels the same, it's actually got panel borders, like vertical ones. So it's less a traditional DeLuca effect. But I do those panels a lot because I'm a really big fan of those kind of pages. But one of the most fun things about it is seeing the way different artists take that script. And Everyone I've worked with has done really interesting stuff with it that I've enjoyed. But I have to say, Elena's the one who like took it the most to heart and saw the opportunity of making that a part of our visual identity. And she just leaned all the way into it. And so I think without even talking about it, we just sort of agreed, okay, we're going to do at least one of these spreads in every issue. And that's part of who we are. And that's who Black Widow is. But yeah, I try to give her as much room as I can because she's a genius. <laughs> like, why should I get in her way, you know? <laughs> That's the thing about it that is so bold. And and we're progressing through the story here, naturally going through the issues, but it's that little meta comics thing. Like there's the story you're reading and then there's the story of the creation behind it, the creators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just knowing that in issue one, this is a new creative team. This is a group of people who haven't worked together before in this configuration with a new character. And the second page, there's this huge spread with crazy action. And it's just like, that's a huge risk. That is a huge risk to take. And yeah. it pays off amazingly. It sets yeah. the tone for the book within the first you know, couple of pages. But it's so cool to see. You're totally right because I was talking about before that that time when Clint sees Stevie and me going like, oh my God, this is going to be so good. But you're right that it honestly happened on pages two and three of issue one because when she turned in that hallway spread, I was like, oh, okay, okay. She gets it. We're going to do something really interesting together and I'm excited about it. And then when Jordy laid those all red colors over it, I was just like, what, what? I loved it. Yeah. You're really going to want to stick around for issues. uh, I guess it's 12 through 15. We're going to do something real weird in there that is 
big and risky, but I hope people are going to dig it. Yeah. As we're going along, we get to see who's behind the plot against Natasha. And I love it. Like, did you come thinking, all right, here are the villains who would come together to do this to Natasha? Or was it a suggestion from Sarah? Like, where was it to, to come together and have, you know, you have Arcade, which I feel like that's just like, that's a Kelly Thompson move right there to pull an Arcade, <laughs> it feels like. But then you have Viper and, and Weeping Lion and Red Guardian, Snapdragon. Where did that group come from? Well, I think the obvious thing would be that it would be Red Room type of villains. And I didn't want to do that. I was like, there should be some Red Room representation here or like Russian characters that she's got this history with. Like we need to acknowledge that and it needs to be part of this, but I don't want it to just be that. And it's one of the reasons I love that when she has that flashback and she comes out of it and you see that page with all those people and she's like, I don't know. It could be any of these people. It could be all of them. Like I've lived a long, dangerous life, you know, any of these people could come for me. And that's, you know, we don't say that outright, but the implication is that's also why she has to get rid of the family. Like it's not just because of this or that or the other. It's because she has been forced through the flashback to then think about all the people that would love to hurt her and how she can't possibly protect people from that. And her life is too dangerous. And so it came from a couple things. First of all, I love writing Viper and she really fit here. I really loved how she sort of slotted in and it made me want to see her and Black Widow like really become bigger enemies together. Arcade was mostly just there as the hired help, which is annoying to him, which makes him funny to me. So I enjoy that. But then Alexi is there as sort of the Trojan horse, right? I didn't want to draw too much focus to the villains because it's a really personal Nat story and I wanted to stay with her. But, you know, the Weeping Lion 2.0 sort of betraying them all because of the horrible thing that she did to him. Fair enough. Or them, I should say. And then we brought in like, you know, Snapdragon, who, you know, is a paid assassin who lost her first gig going up against Black Widow. Like that creates resentment that's hard to let go of, you know? So, I just wanted to find people that made sense, but that wouldn't necessarily be expected, who were all sort of coming together for this common goal of this person has been a thorn in our side for years. We want them off the table. And then I was sort of seeding a thing with Viper that like hers is more about she has plans coming and she doesn't want Black Widow getting in the way of those. And so that was sort of how we got that weird mix of villains. But to me, it was a great way, you know, one of the biggest problems you have for so many of these characters and Captain Marvel included, who you would think on the surface would be immune to it, is that some of them don't have really well-established rogues galleries, whether that's because they haven't had consistent books over the years or because they share villains with other people. With Black Widow, you see so much of that. So many of her big villains are crossovers with Cap or Iron Man, things like that. And so I wanted to really highlight how vast her experience is in that larger Marvel universe. And then also try and go in and start trying to create some new things and build some bigger villains that make sense to really belong to her. So, you know, it's definitely something we're focused on as sort of an idea. We've got a couple really interesting villains coming up. And even though the, the Apogee arc is going to end with 10, there's a lot more to that character that we're going to get to later that I think is really interesting and is more of a fun long game that I hope we get to play. We'll see. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I, f I feel like that that is such a secret sauce to a great book is the writer being a champion for the character and saying like, I want to establish new things for this character. I want to collate the past and present it in this like definitive manner, you know, mm -hmm. like introducing these elements for these characters. So talking about the villain side and those collections of characters, how they came about in a similar way, I want to ask you about the side of the heroes and specifically, I mean, they're in it from the very beginning with Hawkeye and Winter Soldier. That's a one of my favorite little things of Marvel Comics because it's happened in a ton of different books over the last few years is there's this great 
almost not quite buddy cop, but like friend, yeah. just friend narrative that's been going on between these three characters across like, I want to say like four or five different books. Yeah. I immediately obviously think of Matt Rosenberg's Tales of Suspense as one of my favorite limited series of the last few years. I just wanted to hear about like, there is that natural like, well, Matt has this history with these characters. So it would make sense for them to get involved and they have an interest in what's going on with her, et cetera. But I also just want to hear about how much you love writing their dynamic. I love it so much. First of all, I agree with you, the Matt Rosenberg. I loved that little story and I wanted to pick up where he left off. And at first I thought I wasn't going to be able to do it because it was going to be too similar to what he'd already done. Like Nat's gone missing and now they got to find her. And I was like, nah, you know what? That's a joke. That's a joke we make where they're like, didn't we just do this? And then as long as I give us something different, I can still wrap them in in the same way as long as the journey is different. Um, But let me blow your mind. (laughs) So I feel like there's now a parallel with what we're building with Nat and Yelena. And yet in that combo, is Nat the Clint? And Yelena's the Winter Soldier? That seems so wrong because Matt is clearly more of a Winter Soldier. I mean, maybe maybe Yelena is the Clint, but she's just like a grouchier <laughs> version of, of Clint. But um, I love Yelena as a sort of truth teller character. Like that is a great sort of oil and water that always gives you that sort of magic, sparkling chemistry on the page. It's why Hawkeye and Winter Soldier work so well and is so fun. The thing I run into the most with fans uh, is wanting to cast books and they cast all characters that have the same energy instead of mixing them up. No, you can't have the same energy because then there's nowhere to go. You know, it was one of the reasons when I first got put on a force, my immediate thought was, I don't know if I want to write Dazzler. I don't know if I want to write Medusa. Like I'm interested in She-Hulk, but they ended up being so magical within the team because they bring a different element. And I'm always looking for that in my books. I'm always looking for what are the characters that I feel like are underused that can really get a boost. Like that's one of the reasons we brought Anya, Spider-Girl in, Anya Corazon. It's one of the reasons we are having Yelena have a big role. It's one of the reasons I brought Hazmat into Captain Marvel. Like who are these characters that are really interesting, but are maybe underused, who I can show a different side of by pairing them with this sort of bigger name headliner. So yeah, I'm always looking for those little magical moments. And uh, Clinton Bucky will be back for, I guess you'd call it the third arc. 12 through 15. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's a lot more to the story, but ultimately it's towards the end, especially there's a lot more I think readers should fully experience for themselves. We've, we've talked about it, but there's some really great, wonderful moments. That moment where you can, towards the end with Bucky and Natasha, where she finally like stops for a second and she even talks she's like, I'm, I'm normally a shark. Yes. And, and she like stops and you can feel that sense of just what she's talking about, that hole inside of her and woof, yeah. boy, oh boy. Well, that was, you know, we're talking about how much we like the joking Clint and Bucky, but that's really why it was, it wasn't just that I wanted to write them. It was important that they be there because I knew I was going to completely unravel her and she needed someone to catch her. And that was either going to be Clint or Bucky or Yelena. And as I was working on it, it was really obvious that it should be Bucky, especially since he was getting the really part of the plan. And I think it was a really great way to highlight the differences between her relationships with Clint and Bucky. I mean, I think she's very different people with each of them. And I think that's why it's so difficult for her to choose between them in some ways, because she loves them both like fully, but she's a different person with Clint than she is with Bucky. And to choose one over the other almost is like choosing a side of yourself over the other side, which is weird. I know that people would love me to just put her with one or the other. And part of me wants to do that too, because I like romance and comics. I like that stuff. And part of what's so powerful about Ed Brubaker's stuff with Winter Soldier is the Winter Soldier Black Widow stuff. It's so incredible. But I just, I don't really know how she could say yes to either of them, especially now as they've become so close themselves, whether they want to admit it or not. Like that would really destroy that whole dynamic in a sort of devastating way. Yeah. I mean, look, we've gushed about this book for months and months and months and 
thankfully we had the opportunity to do it a little bit more right here. This is one of those things, I, I say it all the time when we're talking about new issues that are coming out on a weekly basis, but it's it's one of those things that we, I could talk about for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours because it's so good. It's so packed with different elements that are themselves alone like worthy of of focus and an entire book but everything combined really just makes it super special i feel and i'm sure ryan feels the same just delighted that i get to be around and see the that like a special book coming out on a, on a monthly basis it's pretty That's cool awesome. thank you i think <laughs> um you know from go i was like I don't know if we'll get more than five issues. If we only get five issues, I hope we're telling this incredible story that people will really fall in love with and it'll be this emotional gutting read and it'll have some of the best action sequences you've ever seen. But if we get more, I want to spin it off into a very specific thing. And I want to take a lot of care in doing that so that I don't have another Mr. and Mrs. X scenario on my hands where it's a perfectly lovely book, but it just feels inconsequential compared to the first chapter. And so I think you're still not going to have that same intensity that we had in those first five pages because people would just come after me if I kept doing that over and over again. (laughs) But I want all those sort of things to like really inform what's coming next. And I hope we're doing that. Certainly I have the right team in place and I'm really proud of what we're doing. And hopefully when people sit down to read it, it'll feel that way too, you know? I think they will. I think it does. I, I, there's some moments even in the the subsequent issues that, you know, sort of give you that feeling without replicating things. And I think that's really well done. I'm very excited for people to keep reading the book. One last question about Black Widow. Was it your idea to give Stevie the Jeff the Land Sharky <laughs> onesie or was that all, Elena? <laughs> it was my idea that maybe it should be a cute shark onesie I didn't know she was going to draw it so cute like ridiculous <laughs> and then I suggested we give her a, a Jeff plush at some point and she, she made that huge Jeff plush that shows up in I think it's issue three when she's in his bedroom and I was like yes mission accomplished we got him in here <laughs> well done well done um as we're we're getting ready to let you go just want to say congrats on on getting your hands on that filthy filthy spider-man action yeah <laughs> I'm pretty excited. It's been a really incredible experience. The artist I'm working with is, oh my God, mind-blowing. People are going to be very excited. It's been an awesome experience so far. And I think people are really going to like the story, except for some things. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, every audience is different. I I have a lot of trouble with this sort of thing we've gotten into where people don't want bad things to happen to characters Mm. like Mm -hmm. that's that's not interesting (laughs) that's what helps us care about these characters yeah we we go through these things with them and that's that's important part of storytelling and because they're based on things that real people go through that are emotionally relatable you know and who's more relatable than spider-man characters right (laughs) yeah That's a dance lot maxim. Uh, Like you got to give them the lows to earn the highs. And I will just say, um, uh, as if this episode isn't chock full of Kelly T uh, compliments enough, when I personally found out that you were one of the team that was jumping on ASM, sure, there was a celebration, but mainly I just thought, yeah, it makes perfect sense that Kelly is on that. It's about time. <laughs> Thank you. I sort of agree, but also it's it's also fast when you think about it. I mean, I haven't even been doing comics that long. And to get to write Spider-Man, you know, six years, seven years in is pretty incredible. Um, I will say that I feel like a lot of my previous work, especially maybe the Hawkeye stuff, is like a clear signal that I was jumping up and down going, hey, guess who could write this book? <laughs> Do you like little sassy, bad jokes in your captions? I'm your girl. So we'll see. Kelly, thank you so, 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 so much for coming and talking to us about all this stuff. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to reread and giving us the opportunity to scream and cry and love (laughs) you and hate you all at the same time. Thanks for having me, guys. It's always a good time with you guys. I'm sure we'll have you on again in the future. We'll probably have a book that maybe includes a song involved with it or something. Who knows? We'll figure that out down the way. <laughs> so subtle. 
<laughs> oh, Kelly, truly the best of the best. Uh, and of course, we're talking about Black Widow this week. You can experience Marvel Studios Black Widow in theaters and on Disney Plus with premiere access, additional fee required. This week, starting July 9th, it's happening. It's here. Celebrate. What a wonderful week. You got great comics. You got great movie. You got so much. Get hyped. All right. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Joe DeBoff is a director of audio production and development. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And he, too, is an oopy goopy man. Oh, you know he is. You know it. That's it. I'm Ryan. That's it. I'm Tucker. <laughs> this is Marvel. Your humor. That's it. That's, That's it. Catchphrase. That's it. <laughs>